Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. A lot going on this week, obviously. Um, I would love to not discuss this week's off-year elections, but, you know, it's a political podcast. I I don't see that we have much choice. Uh, So we're going to speak with Paul Waldman about what happened and what it might portend for the next couple of years. Paul writes for the Washington Post. Then we're going to be joined by Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Will Bunch to talk about the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse the cop-loving teen who gunned down several Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha last year. Um, But first, a lot of people are pointing out that critical race theory is not taught in schools. They don't teach CRT to uh, K-12 students for the same reasons they don't teach particle physics or torts law. It's, It's advanced, right? And others are kind of calling out gullible white people for falling for what is a pretty obvious right-wing propaganda campaign like okay take a listen to this guy from virginia he was interviewed by the young turks and uh and and what is critical race theory well i'm not going to get into the specifics of it because i don't understand it that much but it's something that i don't the, what little bit that I know, I don't care for. And and what have you heard that that you don't? Well, that you I'm, don't not, like? I'm, I'm not gonna, I, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't have that much knowledge on it. But okay. it's something that I'm not, that I don't care for. And if you think that it's unfair of me to pick on a random guy on the street, here's Tucker Carlson of Fox News. I, I've never figured out what a critical race theory is, to be totally honest, after a year of talking about it. They're teaching that some races are morally <laughs> superior to others, that some are inherently sinful and some are inherently saintly, and that's immoral to teach that because it's wrong. That would be my view. Well, and I think also, most voters' view. Well, of course, Tucker's characterization is utter nonsense. Um, he is clearly correct that he's never figured out what it is. Uh, in simple terms, CRT is a graduate-level study of how laws and public policies that are racially neutral on their face can be written with racially discriminatory intent and lead to racially discriminatory outcomes. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying, but this is the crux of it. And maybe the classic example of this kind of analysis or a classic example um, is sentencing disparities related to cocaine, right? Uh, for many years, for 30 years until the Fair Sentencing Act was signed into law in 2010, People who were busted with crack cocaine faced much, much harsher penalties than those who were caught using or selling powdered cocaine. If you possess five grams of cocaine, you faced a five-year minimum prison sentence. To get a similar sentence with powdered cocaine, though, you had to have at least 500 grams. So 100 times more to get the same prison sentence. Now, crack cocaine was disproportionately the, the cocaine product of choice among people of color and uh, white people who were arrested for using cocaine were more likely to be holding powdered cocaine. So there was never any law that said black people would be given much harsher sentences for cocaine than white people, right? That was never, nobody ever wrote that down, but it had that effect for literally decades And there are so many similar examples of this. You know, we'll talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case with Will Bunch in a a little bit. But the trial of the three white men charged with chasing down and killing 
Ahmed Aubrey, who is jogging in a suburban Georgia neighborhood, also started this week. Um, and here's an interesting thing. The county where the killing occurred is, to, is a 25% African-American county, right? But only one of the 12 jurors hearing the case will be a black person. And the defense, this is after the defense, got eight others dismissed. The Supreme Court has ruled that it's unconstitutional to strike a juror because of his or her race, right? And the judge, according to the New York Times, acknowledged that, and I quote, quite a few African-American jurors were excused through preemptory strikes executed by the defense. So he noticed that there was a trend here that would seem to go against the Constitution, but his hands were tied because all the defense had to do was articulate a minimally coherent reason for striking them. The judge noticed this, but couldn't do anything about it. So in 2021, a bunch of Southern white men who uh, allegedly murdered a black man jogging through their neighborhood will be tried in front of an almost all-white jury. So getting back to CRT, the propaganda is effective in part because it's difficult to argue that the critical race theory presented by Tucker Carlson and the rest of the right-wing media is 100% bullshit, but also that the real CRT is very important. Real CRT, real critical race theory, actual critical race theory, is important for law students and sociologists and law enforcement and legislators and others to study. It's, uh, it's actually good and important stuff. And with that, we'll take a quick break and then be right back with Paul Waldman. Uh, stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm joined by Paul Waldman now, who writes for The Washington Post and The American Prospect. Uh, Paul, welcome back to the show. Thank you. 
Well, thanks for taking the time on a on a shitty day. Um, I feel like losing is bad enough, but when Democrats lose, specifically, we then have to wade through like a flood of of lazy apocalyptic punditry for days on end. You hear about you know how this is a center right country, and it's a double whammy. And I, I'm not sure that the GOP has the same problem uh, when they lose. CNN has a piece up today titled "Donald Trump Fever May Be Breaking." It's by Zachary Wolf, and it features this remarkable passage. Let me quote it. Here's one thing everybody can be happy about. The election results, for the most part, are not being questioned. That may have a lot to do with Republicans doing well. Maybe. Who knows? (laughs) But the results should prove to them that Trump's voter fraud myth is, in fact, a myth. The gap between like basic observation and this type of punditry is stunning to me. What, What can you even say about that? I think that a lot of it is motivated by hope, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> but there's this, there is still a baseline kind of assumption that when Republicans do something crazy, no matter how many times they do it, or no matter how many uh, absurd things they incorporate into their worldview, that it's sort of temporary. It's just an act for the rubes. And yeah. underneath it all, there is a sane party that in the right circumstances is just waiting to return. Um, and, uh, that's really not true. Or even if it is true in certain kinds of ways, it doesn't really matter. Um, and I think that, you know, that you're, I've, I've been seeing that in other places too, you know, Rich Lowry from the national review, uh, has a piece up on Politico saying that, you know, this is a defeat for Donald Trump because that's something that, uh, the people like him desperately want to be true. The Trump will just sort of fade into the woodwork and we'll have candidates like Glenn Youngkin who can um, benefit from Trumpism without being too Trumpy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, I, I really just don't think that that's true at all. I mean, obviously Glenn Youngkin is, is in some ways a very traditional kind of Republican in that, um, you know, what he did with critical race theory is very much like what, for instance, George H.W. Bush did with Willie Horton. You know, nobody really thought, even at in the, in the heart of the 1988 campaign, that when he was president, Bush would spend a lot of time working on prison furlough policy. And right. nobody really thinks that Glenn Youngkin is going to spend a lot of time on, uh, on education policy, let alone on critical race theory. Um, you know, it's it, there's a, a general acceptance that that is just an, an act for the rubes, and you know this is what people are angry about now. So he exploits it for a mo- for a while, and then once he's in office, he will pursue the traditional Republican agenda of tax cuts and deregulation. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, in that sense, he does harken back to that to that previous era, but that doesn't mean that you know Trumpism is any less of a force. Uh, within the Republican Party, or that you know things like the the the, the fact that someone like Youngkin wins means that that they are going to be uh, any any less committed to the idea that uh, a victory by Democrats can never be legitimate and is proof of voter fraud, for instance. Right, exactly right. And uh, there was talk about Youngkin running for president in 2024. You know, I think a Republican primary voters, specifically primary voters across the country, don't want somebody like Youngkin. They want somebody like Trump, right? Or DeSantis or Abbott, um, as Florida Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or, or Greg Abbott from Texas. Um, let's try to talk about what actually happened. You, you wrote, and I quote, um, 
One of the most pervasive biases among the political media is a bias towards dramatization, interpreting every event as startling, extraordinary, and signaling a reshaped political landscape. Paul, what is thermostatic public opinion? Well, it's the the idea that, like, you know, your thermostat, when it gets too hot, it t- t- turns on and, and cools things down and vice versa. Um, the idea is that the public is always kind of pulling the political system back to sort of something like the middle, that whenever there's a Democrat who becomes president, then the public immediately becomes a little more conservative. Um, and when there's a Republican who's president, the public immediately becomes a little more liberal. Um, and so there's always this kind of push and pull. But one of the, uh, I think maybe the most important thing that happens whenever there's a change in the White House is that the opposition party gets very mad. And you know, if you're a Democrat, you know, what's what what's your view of how things are going? Um, you know, even if even if things were going a little bit better for Joe Biden, you know, there, there are some some problems here that, that also set a context for Virginia uh, and New Jersey. Biden's approval ratings are low. There's inflation that we're dealing with, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even even if, say, they had passed the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill a couple of weeks ago, what would the average Democrat be saying about how things are going? They'd say, well, you know, pretty good. You know, this bill wasn't everything that I wanted, but it's going to do some good things. And we're not actually feeling those things because these policies take years to actually roll out. But, you know, looks like things are OK. And what is a Republican voter thinking? Well, they're in a rage and they're going to be as long as there's a Democrat in in, in the White House, because every day they see this guy they hate in the newspapers and on television. Just as when, when Donald Trump was president, they Democrats were in a rage for four years. That's yeah. just how it works. And anger is the best motivator of political action, including voting. And that's always the way it's going to be. And so there was n- absolutely nothing that was unexpected about what happened on Tuesday. Of course, Republicans were going to get a big win. They, The opposition party always gets a big win. You know, I think 11 out of the last 12 elections in Virginia, gubernatorial elections, whichever party was in uh, the White House lost. And interestingly, the one exception was when Terry McAuliffe himself won in 2013 when Barack Obama was president. But that year, he actually got a lower percentage of the vote than he did this year. But there was a libertarian candidate who got 6% and that helped him win. Yeah. So- it's not like this was some kind of dramatic, unexpected thing. But as I wrote there, you know, reporters always have a tendency to want to make whatever they're writing about as kind of interesting and compelling as possible. And we tend to get this kind of blinkered view that whatever just happened has changed everything. And, you know, the, the alternative way of looking at it is to say, you know, if you look at a, things through a more historical perspective, it's actually not that unexpected and it's not that surprising, uh, not that dramatic. And, you know, saying that might be true, but it makes for kind of a boring story. Yeah, it's not good for pundits, not good for punditry to just say, well, this is to be expected to a very great degree. Um, You also wrote, here's the reality for 2022, only something truly earth shaking will prevent the almost inevitable outcome of Democrats losing the House and probably the Senate as well. This is not doing well, by the way, um, for my long term goal of not making this program overly depressing. Right. You're not helping. You know, I wrote a piece for The Nation a while back arguing that there's good reason to believe that voters tend to punish the party in power just for doing stuff. And the exact stuff that they matter that they do doesn't really matter that much. And I urge Democrats to just go big if they get the opportunity, because then at least they can do something about, you know, climate and health care and um, improving 
people's material well-being before getting trounced or shellacked. So today, Axios has a headline reading, Biden hits the gas. Um, the, the Washington Post, the news side, you're on the opinion side, has a report titled, After Loss in Virginia, Democrats look to speed up their stalled $3 trillion spending agenda. Meanwhile, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is telling reporters that this was a signal that they should slow down. Paul, what are the chances that uh, Dems don't panic and do take away what I think is the proper message that they better pass some good stuff? Uh, so they have not only so they have a better shot next year, but so that they pass some good stuff. Well, that seems to be the prevailing wisdom from everyone except Manchin. I think there's an understanding that God, I that, hate that guy. <laughs> you know, you can that that passing these bills may not save them in 2022, but not passing them is certainly going to be a problem because. Democratic voters are quite reasonably going to say, what was the point of electing you people if you can't do anything? And then that will dampen Democratic turnout. Um, I happen to think that it's all but inevitable that they're going to lose in 2022. So uh, they should just do whatever they can to accomplish things because that's what they supposedly entered politics for. You know, the problem is that you know you have this horribly messy process that. Uh, you know, it reinforces all the things that people believe about Washington and how they can't get anything done. And it's all just a bunch of infighting. Um, and then at the end of it, if it works, you get a day or two of good headlines about how you passed a bill. But because Democrats especially deal with all these very complicated policies, it usually takes a long time for them to play out to people's benefit. And the Affordable Care Act is a great example. You know, they worked for an entire year to get this incredibly intricate thing passed and they managed to do it by the skin of their teeth. And then they lost hugely uh, in the 2010 midterm elections anyway, just as Bill Clinton had lost in the 1994 midterms when he tried and failed to pass health care reform. Right. And what happened? Well, you know, within 10 years, <laughs> it became a political advantage to Democrats. And when Republicans tried to undo it in 2018, they paid a very serious price. Yeah. Um, but you know, it wasn't in the short term, it didn't do anything for them. They still had a had a terrible blowout in that first midterm election. And, you know, the truth is that that's that barring some kind of extraordinary circumstances, that's probably going to happen to Democrats this year, too. So the answer is to just do the things you think are the right thing to do. Uh, and then at least at the end of it, you'll be able to say, you know, we did something meaningful for the country. Um, you know, I think that's that's the problem with somebody like Manchin in particular is that it's hard to tell what he actually wants in a substantive way. You know, he'll talk a lot about why the things Democrats want to do are too liberal, but he doesn't have much of a discernible agenda himself. Um, but one of the interesting things I think is that you're hearing not just from the liberals in the party, but a lot of the uh, those frontline members in the House, the more um, the more centrist members who themselves are saying, we have to pass this because if we don't, I am really screwed in yeah. the midterms. Like they, those people who were in those swing districts, they know that, you know, they, they might, parts of the bill might be controversial. There are things that they want to do to make it a little more centrist, but if nothing passes then there's going to be no reason for people in their districts to vote for them. Yeah, that's right. Listen, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish and I think that you're, probably right. Next year is probably going to be bad for the Democrats. The most likely scenario is that they lose the House and the Senate. But I have to say that I, I am 
I'm feeling a bit humble in my predictive powers because I'm not sure if like past historical patterns still apply or will apply in this kind of very different, um, you know, this post-Trump world, post-pandemic world. There's, there's a, there's, there's some reasons I think to to think it's possible there'll be an alternative scenario. Mostly that this is such a bad time to hold an election for Democrats. Um, you know, we talked about Mansion and Kirsten Cinema and all the wrangling, months of wrangling, um, and uncertainty about the Democratic agenda even passing. But also during that same time, you know, we're at the tail end of a very big wave of COVID. Um, you know, Glenn Youngkin did keep Trump kind of locked up uh, next year. I think Trump is certainly going to be out doing rallies around the country. He's going to be a big part of it. Democrats, when they run against Trump in 2022, are going to have Trump out on the campaign, uh, you know, on the campaign trail. And then I think Trump candidates, you know, he's going to endorse a lot of candidates who are extreme and who are personally loyal to him and who, um, you know, embrace the so-called big lie about voter fraud and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, 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 the idea that the out party always does well is based on the fact that they're, as you said, more fearful than the party in power. And um, I don't know, man, after January 6th, we'll see, we'll see next year what it looks like. We could be past the pandemic by then. Uh, we could be seeing a, a real booming economy as uh pent up demand gets, uh, you know, gets met with decent supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm not, uh, I'm trying not to be fatalistic about it. I, you know, I, I think, I think it's likely that it'll be bad, but it could not be because things are yeah, just very weird. I think you've done a good job of laying out what the best case scenario for Democrats is that the pandemic is fading. The economy is going really well, which would you know boost Joe Biden's approval ratings. And then if you add to that a more, kind of daily in-your-face presence of Donald Trump, that will really be the best chance that they have because there's never been somebody who motivates Democrats the way Trump does. And he, uncharacteristically, has remained very quiet. And, you know, maybe the someone in the party, the Youngkin campaign, managed to convince him that this was the best way for them to succeed was for him to be as quiet as possible. And, you know, uh, I... I've always thought from the moment of the 2020 election that he was going to say that he would run again in 2024 or that he was toying with it just so people would keep paying attention to him, but then he wouldn't run. But, you know, I've kind of changed my view about that. I think he, chances are he probably will. You know, who? there's a certain amount of speculation in trying to figure out what's in Donald Trump's head, of course. Sure. But but there's, there a, you know, every day we get closer to the 2024 election, the more he's going to want to make himself a presence. And... If in the 2022 campaign, he is really in the news a lot and Democrats are feeling that, um, you know, he could return and that's a that's a genuine threat, then that could be a great motivating factor for them to get to the polls. So I think that's the best the best chance. I mean, if you look back at the the only two recent elections where um, the out party didn't win a huge victory in the midterms, the first was 1990, 1998 where there was a backlash to the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And the second was 2002, when we were still really in that post 9-11 thing. And George W. Bush had approval ratings in the mid 60s. And, you know, they successfully said that Democrats were terrorist loving traitors and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 
uh, it's not that it's impossible, but you have to have something really monumental happening. Um, and something monumental could happen. And maybe the potential return of Donald Trump to the White House, if it's really seeming like a real urgent possibility, could be monumental enough. It's always possible. Yeah. Um, one more before I let you go. Media critics today, including you know me, are uh, pointing out that the kind of ubiquitous narrative that education played a central issue in this race is a, an irresponsible way to talk about a campaign that was built around stirring up white racial grievances about CRT when that is not a real issue. Uh, you wrote a piece about how the GOP has kind of ended up in a post-dog whistle place. Um, they, they're, they're, no longer, uh, they're no longer kind of trying to uh, be subtle to avoid getting punished by the voters. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think dog whistles are really possible anymore. You know, the idea of a dog whistle is that it's inaudible to the human ear, and political dog whistles are inaudible to certain people where, while there are sort of subsets of the electorate that you're speaking to who get the message. But now everybody gets the message. You know, you can't hide anything anymore. There's nothing to decode. You know, uh, within moments of you saying something, it will be widely understood what you're talking about. Um, and you have, you know, an extremely polarized electorate and you have a Republican Party that doesn't want dog whistles. They want people who will be forthright in kind of the most offensive things that they want to say. Um, and, you know, the education thing, this is one of the other interesting um, things that's happening right in the wake of this election. And I just wrote a piece that's going to go up soon on The Washington Post uh, about this, is that, you know, the the entire Republican Party has basically decided that this is like like Captain America's super serum that they that every single campaign up and down the ballot is all going to be about critical race theory and education. And of course, they don't have much of a governing agenda when it comes to education. You know, it's not like we're having a debate over should taxes go up or down. You know, they just want people to be mad and to, you know, say vague things like, oh, you know, parents ought to be in control, which is doesn't actually tell you how policy might change. Um, and furthermore, you know, the federal government has very little to do with how education runs in America. So the analogy I make is that, you know, having a, a member of Congress saying in their campaign that they're going to give parents back control over education is like, you know, your local city council person telling you they have a plan to contain North Korea's nuclear program. <laughs> right. It's just not where their authority is. Right. Um, so, but they, they're all saying that this is, this is, this is the thing, this is, you know, where it's, where it's going to be for them from now through 2022. Um, and uh, it's not actually, uh, it might be an effective campaign issue, but you know, who knows what it'll be like a year from now, but that there's no question that the Republican party thinks that this is, this is the secret sauce that is really going to work for them. Yeah. And Democrats can't just ignore it and hope that it goes away. That's, that's clearly the case. Um, I brought this up before. It used to be that political scientists would find that there was a a penalty to be paid by uh, appealing to white racial grievance in a in too explicit a way that voters would punish those people, and somewhere along the way, that effect uh, stopped being apparent, and that was in the 2010, 2011, around then, after the election of Barack Obama, the first black president. So we we attribute all of this to Trump. Um, but we should attribute a lot of this to Barack Obama and the backlash against his his presidency. Paul Waldman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm always happy to join you. Folks, stay tuned. We'll um, take a quick break and then be right back with Will Bunch. 
I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. I find it very, very easy to be true. I find myself alone when each day is through. Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you because you're mine. I walk the line. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. You know, I honestly can't believe that I have not had my next guest on the show before. I thought that I had. Um, Will Bunch is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We've followed each other on Twitter for years now, and I I don't know why we haven't connected previously. He's a really smart guy. Um, I am happy to finally have him on. Will Bunch, welcome to We've Got Issues. Joshua, thanks so much for having me. It's great to great to finally meet you. Yeah, finally, uh, right? In, I mean, in, in some some other venue. <laughs> Or we can talk in more than 280 characters. Right? <laughs> it's weird. We're going to have you on uh, now that now that we're in contact uh, off of Twitter. We're going to have you on more often. So um, the murder uh, trial of Kyle Rittenhouse began this week. It has gotten off to a rough start. Uh, Rittenhouse, as I'm sure all listeners know, was the teenager who traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, during the protests over a police officer shooting Jacob Blake in the back seven times in front of his children. Uh, and he killed two people and wounded a third uh, with an AR-15. Uh, then he went home. Uh, wasn't even detained by the police there. Some jurors said that they were fearful of sitting on the jury. And the judge in this case has uh, has raised some eyebrows. He had previously ruled that evidence of Rittenhouse sucker punching a young woman at an earlier protest was inadmissible, but he ruled that video of cops thanking Rittenhouse for being there prior to the murders was admissible. And then this week he ruled that while Rittenhouse's victims could not be referred to as such in court, can't call them victor victims, um, they could be called looters and rioters. Will had an alarming column about this. It's titled, uh, When Do We Get to Use the Guns, the Life or Death Stakes of the Kyle Rittenhouse Trial? You can read it at Inquirer.com. Will, was there any evidence presented that Rittenhouse's victims were, in fact, rioting or looting? It's hard for me to wrap my head around a judge saying that attorneys can't call them victims, but can call them these, like, extremely uh, volatile, you know, descriptors. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, uh, that's, that's a great question. You know, um, Rittenhouse was part of this posse of folks who organized themselves online, basically, which is, you know, one of the one of the bad things about the internet, right? That it makes it easier to organize a posse if you are so inclined. And 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 uh, then seventeen-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who was kind of a cop and, and gun enthusiast, was so inclined. So, I, I mean, what the, what the what the what his defense is going to present this week or, or next week in terms of their self-defense uh, argument is, you know, they're going to show footage of these altercations. And, and the thing is, these, these vigilantes, or vigilantes, excuse me, um, went, to, went to Kenosha spoiling for a fight, right? And, yes. so, and, so, and so they got one, you know, and uh, they, they confronted people who were out there 
protesting in their various ways for racial justice. Um, and, you know, as these scuffles ensued, um, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the violence they're alleging happened after the first encounter where Rittenhouse had already shot and killed one man. So, I mean, I think normally your application would be, this guy just killed somebody, stop him, you know, do something. And uh, so, yeah, there were more altercations and a guy, I mean, it's funny, a guy uh, swung his, his skateboard at Kyle Rittenhouse and um, his defense is trying to show that a skateboard could be a, a deadly weapon that I think they uh, found one case in human history where somebody was like decapitated or something by, by a skateboard. So, so you know, so, so, so they're, they're going to argue this, but I mean, you know, as, as much as his individual defense may or may not be about self-defense, I mean, what's, what's really on trial here is the whole notion of, uh, you know, vigilante justice and, um, which is wrapped into just the growing, uh, you know, zeitgeist on the on the political far right right now, which is that uh, we're in a situation that that calls for violence. Uh, yeah. You know that that uh, you know we need guns, and um, uh, you know we should we should be ready to use them because you know, and and in 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 the last year or so this has all been wrapped up with phony conspiracy theories. So, you know, we're going to need guns because now the Democrats are stealing all the elections. Um, I mean, that goes back a lot longer than the last year or two. I mean, it used to be black helicopters, UN helicopters back in the nineties, you know, we had the kind of Ruby Ridge militia movement 1.0. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would, I would highly recommend people check out a book by uh, Kathleen Ballou called, called bringing the war home, which, you know, traces this whole movement back to the end of the Vietnam war in the late seventies, yeah. uh, all, all, all the way through. And she talked and she talks about this, but, um, you know, I think, I think right now with the kind of Trump inspired, uh, or, or post Trump conspiracy theories, either about stolen elections or, or of course, all, you know, all the paranoia surrounding COVID and, and, and vaccines and masks and whatnot. Um, uh, uh, it's just a growing climate of conversations about violence and then, and then actual violence, including, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, let's, let's, before we get into the kind of bigger context, um, you took a look at the judge that who is hearing this case, a guy named Bruce Schroeder and his background. Again, we're going to get to the larger context, but before we do, what did you find out about, um, this judge. Yeah, well, speak, speaking of the 1980s, as, as we have been, uh, um, uh, this is a judge who was appointed back in 1984, and he is so much of that era, right? That the you know the era that elected Ronald Reagan, the Law and Order era, and he's kind of a loose cannon, but always really tough on defendants, always uh, mocking civil liberties kind of judge. You know, I mean. The first time he ever made any kind of headline outside of Kenosha was, um, uh, you know, that that sex workers uh, would, would would be required to get AIDS tests. And and when they said, well, that might be a civil liberties violation, he said, I don't care about civil liberties, basically. Um, uh, and, and he's kind of proved that with his record. I mean, I mean, very recently, you know, uh, you know, flash forward 35 years, and uh, there was a case where the appeals court in Wisconsin accused 
Judge Schroeder of public shaming uh, a defendant in his court who was convicted of retail theft. And he, he said, well, as part of your sentence, if you, if you enter a store, uh, you know, in the near future, you're going to have to go to the management of that store and tell them that you have a criminal record for, for, for retail theft. Um, uh, he, he was so, <clears throat> his reputation in Kenosha was so bad that the newspaper actually did this article in 2006 that said there was now a huge backlog in, in, the, in the county court system because so many defendants had requested not to have him as their judge. You know, we're trying to find ways not to go before Judge Schroeder. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned some of his rulings now in the, in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, um, uh, which, which are becoming very controversial. And, yeah. and this is all this is all one piece with his record and it and um uh you know he just seems like this case is going to have such national implications depending on how it goes and he's not the guy you really want to be overseeing this trial yeah it certainly it feels like the fix is in and uh we will have to see how it shakes out obviously uh keep in mind that prosecutors cannot appeal an acquittal and also keep in mind that this Justice Department uh, under Merrick Garland has been extremely wary of uh, getting involved in any kind of politically charged cases. So it's unlikely that you would see a civil rights prosecution, um, any kind of uh, federal movement on this if, if, uh, if Rittenhouse gets off. And you connect this case to, as we started to, to talk about, this kind of continually growing amount of uh, violent eliminationist rhetoric on the right. And in the column, you mentioned this viral video from a Trump supporter at a Turning Point USA conference. Turning Point USA is a right-wing campus youth group led by Charlie Kirk. You might have, you might have heard this. Again, it was pretty, it was all over Twitter and Facebook. But let's just take a quick listen to this clip. Fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So, no, I, 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 no, hold on. I, I'm, no, stop. Hold on. Now, I'm going to denounce that. I'm going to tell you why. Because you're playing into all their plans, and they're trying to make you do this. Uh, so people in that audience cheered. Uh, Kirk pushed back on that. Charlie Kirk, the co-founder of TPUSA, pushed back on that. And uh, you thought that the way he did so was kind of revealing. What what did he find problematic with that question? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he said, you know, I'm going to disagree with you. But he didn't say, I'm shocked you would say that or this is your idea. So immoral, amoral or anything like that. Uh, what he said was, you know, you're giving the left, you know, ammunition, uh, uh, pun half intended, but, you know, you're giving, you're giving the left uh, reasons to crack down on us and, and, and we don't want that. So, you know, I mean, he viewed it in context of the great game with the, uh, with the evil far left, right? You know, uh, that was, that was Charlie Kirk's perspective. Um, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it, this is, a, it's, it's becoming kind of mainstream. Um, there was a survey just released this week by the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, found that 30% of Republicans believe that, and I quote, true American patriots may need to resort to violence in order to save the U.S. 
Um, and that was true of 11 percent of Democrats as well. So we're all charged up. But 30 uh, percent of, of Republicans, it's a, a third, believe that we may have to resort to violence. And there has actually been an enormous amount of uh, political violence from the right yes. over the past several years, right? Yeah, well, I mean, what's what's really bizarre about the uh, the whole Turning Point USA incident from last week and, and this guy's comments. So, so this this meeting uh, with Charlie Kirk took place in Boise, Idaho, right, which is the, the biggest city in, in Idaho. Um, what I don't, I don't know if people were even aware or maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I guess maybe it didn't really matter to them. But that exact same day, I think it actually happened an hour or two earlier than the meeting but that same day also in boise idaho you had this thing and and you know i'm i'm still i'm still flabbergasted that this thing barely cracked the national news at all i don't even think i honestly i don't know if i saw it at all on the national news but there there was a mall there was a mall shooter in boise uh in fact he went to the state's largest mall uh and uh uh you know with a gun and uh, he shot seven people. <clears throat> he he killed he killed two of the people that he shot. Um, one was a uh, immigrant from Mexico, and the other was a security guard at the mall who was part of the trans transgender community there. So it was inter- interesting targets, and and so you would suspect that maybe this guy had a far right background, and he did. You know, he's his online profile had all sorts of you know hate speech toward Latinos. Um, in other groups. Uh, he was a, a Second Amendment fanatic. Uh, he'd been having this running battle with the governor over his, his own gun rights because he had a criminal record and, he, you know, there were restrictions on his ability to own a gun and he was uh, up in arms about that. I mean, this guy was a far, far right extremist, you know, so, so on the same day that you had this guy asking, when do we get to use the guns? This guy from the far right was in a mall using the guns, so or using a gun. So, um, uh, and, and I'm I'm kind of shocked it didn't get more national coverage. Like I said, um, uh, 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 David David uh, uh, Nyward or Neward? I, 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 Nyward. Nyward. Yeah, yeah. I, I never hear his name out loud, so I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Even though I've been reading him for for about twenty years. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, 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 who's who's a great chronicler of far-right extremist movements, especially especially out west where he lives. Um, uh, he really pieced together the whole history of this guy. And, oh, oh, and also he'd been at, at some event where there were leftist or maybe Antifa or whatever protesters, and he'd been menacing them with his gun at that, at that event. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and, it's, and this, this is far from the only shooting or murder that we can tie to right-wing, right? To right-wing extremism, you know, there's Dylan Roof, there's uh, the uh, El Paso Walmart shooter, just just to name two of the most egregious cases. And, and, and there was the, a civil suit against the organizers of the Unite the Right protest yeah. in Charlottesville in 2017 that started this week as well. Uh, there was Caesar Sayoc, the so-called MAGA bomber, who sent pipe bombs to uh, Donald Trump's perceived enemies. There was, of course, the Capitol riot, and. Um, Yet and everybody who watches Fox believes that it is the left that is responsible for political violence and that entire cities have been burned down. <laughs> it's well, remarkable. Well, they, the they, projection yeah, they, is they, incredible. They've got a few they've got their they've got a few clips from the twenty twenty um, racial protest that they have on a loop that they just play 
constantly, no matter no matter what the story is, you know, with without any context or relation. But you know, I mean, I mean that works. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I I I engage with my conservative readers all the time, and that that may be their biggest complaint. You know, what about you know what about them burning down the cities in, in 2020 and and uh, yeah, uh, I mean that's that. their that's their what aboutism with the, when it comes to the Capitol yeah. riot. They say, well, exactly. what about the, all the cities that burned down? And when you tell them, look, there were no cities that burned down. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> they think that you're nuts, right? Because they hear it every day. Yeah, they see it. They see it on Fox every night on, you know, Tucker Carlson or whatever. Yeah. You see, you see those same those same clips over and over. Again, the same you know? trash. Yeah, like there's yeah. a dumpster, literally a dumpster right. on fire. Well, was you know, one of they'll, they'll be, they'll they be talking about Minneapolis, but they'll find a dumpster fire from Portland and they'll show that. <laughs> you know, and it, um, I think Newsmax it, got caught doing like um, they were running footage from a riot in the Ukraine in Ukraine. Oh yeah. I heard about that somewhere like that, maybe Ukraine or somewhere. But um, yeah, it wasn't even yeah, in this country. yeah. Why, why, <laughs> why, why, why limit yourself to the United States? Right? Yeah, there's no, there's a, juicy there's a whole, footage there's a whole of world. chaos whole world elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you're connecting this in the um, in your piece, which I urge everybody to read. You connect this trial in Wisconsin with all this violent rhetoric and actual violence, and warn that an acquittal for Kyle Rittenhouse could have you know, serious consequences. Can you talk about what you see as the stakes here? Yeah, I mean, I think is the, I think is the, is the Trump fried political movement, you know, embraces violence more and more. I mean, they're looking for heroes. They're looking for martyrs. You know, another, another martyr to this group is, is Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot and killed during the Capitol riot, um, uh, during the insurrection, uh, who's been praised in a video by, by Trump himself. And, um, you know, Rittenhouse already obviously has a lot of a lot of high high profile um, supporters on on the right. I mean, they raised two million dollars to bail him out of jail, which is why he's been free and hanging out with the Proud Boys uh, while he's waiting for a double murder trial, which is kind of hard to believe. But yes, uh, only in America, only in only in a certain corner of America, anyway. But um, um, uh, so um. You know, if, if if he is found not guilty of, uh, you know, by reasons of self-defense, which is his defense, if he's if he's found now not guilty, I think many people in that community, that that extreme ex- extremist right-wing community, are going to see this basically as you know, license to kill. I know that's a, you know, that's a loaded term from a James Bond movie, perhaps, but um, you know, basically, um, you know, why why can't we then? go to left-wing protests or whatever, uh, you know, with large numbers of people with guns, because, you know, we're, we're protecting the, we're protecting the public. And, um, now we, now we have legal precedent on our side, you know, I mean, it's not, not really legal precedent. It would be one judge's ruling in one case, but in the, in the hothouse environment of the internet, I mean, it would be portrayed as, um, a victory, a victory for, uh, uh, you know, civil war type politics, you know, um, and so this is happening at the worst possible time. I mean, I couldn't think of, you know, I mean, I mean, to have this trial right when this violent mood on the far right is kind of reaching a crescendo um, is, you know, the, the timing couldn't be worse. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's getting very dangerous out there. 
Um, there was a, an excellent piece in the Boston Globe this week. Also this week, lots of stuff at the same time. They looked at all these incidents where people had um, attacked protesters, mostly anti-racist protesters, with cars. Um, scores of people have been hit by cars during these protests, resulting in dozens of injuries, quote, at least three deaths, but precious little justice, much less sympathy for the demonstrators injured, killed, or just plain terrified. Oklahoma and 15 other states have considered bills protecting drivers, not pro protesters, as these ramming incidents have proliferated. So check that out, too. It's a, yeah, it's a I mean, it's, frightening it's the, trend. Right. It's the flip side of Judge Schroeder, right? It's 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 uh, people with power giving permission for these kind of attacks. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Call it fascism, guy. Call it fascism. That's what it is. Folks, as you know, I've been trying to avoid being too depressing, and I just want to apologize for this week's entire show. <laughs> Everything is awful right now, and will certainly, will certainly did not help us stay positive. <laughs> but a lot can happen in a year, right? We may be approaching uh, I, I, the end I of the pandemic. I tend to have that effect on people for some reason. <laughs> Will, I want to thank you for joining us, and um, let's have you on again, hopefully, when we can discuss something a little bit more um, encouraging. Absolutely, or uh, any time, really. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Joshua. Thanks so much. I also want to thank Paul Waldman and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Raw Story for supporting the show. And of course, I would like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.